Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I think you always have a choice whether to forgive or not to forgive. I think it is easier to forgive when you understand the other side a little bit and what their motivations might be or their worldview. I'm Sarah Wilson and this is Wild, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. This is one of those stories that you really can describe as your worst possible nightmare. I've thought about today's guest's traumatic and unfathomable experience for a long time. Ever since I first began hearing about Westerners, often journalists and academics or activists, captured in countries under military or despotic rule and thrown into jail for crimes they didn't commit and used as a political pawn, often tortured and even executed. If I'm honest, I think about it every time I pass through an international airport. In September 2018, Australian academic Kylie Moore-Gilbert was pulled up at an Iranian airport, detained without any reason given, and imprisoned for 804 days. A year of it in isolation. She was tortured, denied any contact with the outside world, starved and beaten, and significantly prevented from killing herself. The saga is multi-layered and dramatic in all kinds of directions. Kylie escapes briefly. She loses her husband. She's tortured and does long stints in isolation. She sneaks out letters to the Australian Prime Minister and she lives for two years and three months, not knowing if she was going to be executed and not knowing if anyone back home in Australia was doing anything to save her. I'm not going to give away too much more of Kylie's story. You have to hear it from Kylie because she tells it with a compassion and expansiveness that defies an adequate summation from me. It's a gentle conversation and Kylie's wisdoms and insights are strangely universal. We focus together heavily on how she coped mentally and spiritually. It's so incredible, isn't it, how those who are thrust into extreme life events or who have profoundly painful experiences can so often deliver us the wisdoms we crave in our day-to-day lives. Perhaps more than any other interview on this podcast, this conversation goes to the heart of what makes humanity worth living for and how it's not about mortgages and the confections so many of us get locked into. Carly and I talk whether forgiveness is a choice, how joy can be found in misery, 
how to use curiosity to survive the most base and terrifying ordeals, as well as less extreme ones, and how to write a book in your head while incarcerated, which she did, and it's called The Uncaged Sky. I think you'll all love this chat. So Kylie, welcome to Wild and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's really hard to know where to start a conversation around such a complex life story, but I might just begin by asking, how old were you when you were captured that day at the airport in Iran in 2018? I was 31 years old. Wow. Okay. Look, maybe you could describe that moment. You were packed, ready to go home. You you checked in your luggage. You were heading home from a conference and all of a sudden you were pulled aside for interrogation. Could you describe what happened and I guess what went through your head and whether you could fathom any basis to being captured? I think I was basically in shock for probably even the first 24 hours after they'd arrested me. I just couldn't compute that I was being arrested at all. I I hadn't done anything wrong. I was completely innocent and I didn't really understand what they wanted from me in those first few hours or days because I didn't speak Farsi and most of them didn't speak English. I just had no real way of properly communicating and and understanding the context of my arrest or, or why or who this group even was who'd arrested me. So I was very dazed and confused and in shock for the first few days, actually, and nothing much was going through my head other than shock and and just a really a lack of comprehension at all as to whether, you know, I was even being arrested by an official arm of the state or perhaps this was an armed group or a non-state group or, you know, I, I really had no idea what was happening. Was I being kidnapped? Was I being formally charged with something? It, it was just so confusing and for me quite shocking. I know that there's your husband was Israeli and you'd converted to Judaism. Did you feel that that may have played into it? Because, of course, in Iran, there's a big issue with the Israelis. It wasn't the main reason for my arrest. They didn't know that my ex-husband had an Israeli passport when they first started looking into me. They discovered that later on down the track and obviously that made it much worse for me. It made me look more suspicious in the eyes of the Iranians. But I was arrested because of my research. I'd come to Iran as a academic researcher and lecturer at Melbourne University, been invited by an Iranian university to come and attend a, a seminar on Shia Islam. And my research was about the Shia community in Bahrain, which is an Arab country in the Persian Gulf. I just thought it would be relevant for my research. I was invited there. I'd applied for my visa at the Iranian embassy in Canberra beforehand and been presumably vetted by them and approved for the visa. So I didn't think they would find out that my husband had an Israeli passport. But, you know, I'm not an Israeli myself. And, you know, my husband, he was born in Russia and migrated to Australia. So whilst he had that passport, it was a relatively tenuous link. And I just assumed being an Australian, I'd be pretty safe. You were then interrogated for a week, blindfolded, and then dumped in a prison. Can you talk a little bit about the conditions in the prison? Like, what was your cell like? How big was it? Was there a toilet? What did your life look like when you first arrived in prison? It was horrendous. It's difficult to even describe the conditions. I I didn't even know that the initial cell they put me in was an actual cell. It was so small. I was sort of shoved into this room with a bag of 
clothes, the prison uniform they wanted me to change into. And I actually thought it was the change room. You know, it was like a cubicle. It was about about two and a half meters squared and it didn't have a window, didn't have any furniture, nothing whatsoever, just four walls and a very dirty carpet on the floor. And I just thought, okay, I'm coming in here for a few minutes to get out of my clothes and put this uniform on. And then they're going to take me to the actual cell. There was no toilet, nothing. And yeah, they came back, took my clothes away from me when I was wearing the uniform and then slammed the door in my face again. And it it took me a while to realize, okay, I'm actually here. Like I'm living here now in this tiny box. Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't communicate with the prison guards because I didn't speak Farsi and they didn't speak English. So I couldn't even tell them really when I needed the toilet, when I needed a doctor, when I needed something I had no way of expressing myself and that was really, really hard. They couldn't even tell me how I could contact them. There was a phone on the wall, but I didn't know what numbers to press. And even if I did manage to speak to someone, I I couldn't communicate with them. So it was just so bewildering and, and scary and terrifying. I was one month in that tiny box. Right, with no communication, no idea what was happening. No, I, I figured out after a while how to call the guards. And, you know, if I would say toilet on the phone repeatedly, they would get that that's what I wanted. And, you know, they wouldn't always come when you called them and they certainly wouldn't come in the middle of the night. But basic stuff like that, I did figure out. And there's a lot you can do with miming and gesturing as well. Yes, if, if if a guard's standing outside your cell, of course. Yeah. <laughs> I can't fathom what it must have been like to not even know if people on the outside knew what was happening. At what point in all of this did you get sort of an indication that perhaps someone in Australia knew where you were? In terms of the authorities in Australia, I had no indication that they knew where I was for months. I was banned or I wasn't allowed to have consular visits at the beginning. During the interrogation phase, I was banned from consular assistance. So apparently the Australian embassy was trying to get access to me, which is, you know, when you arrest a foreigner under international law, you need to let that embassy have a consular visit with that person. So the embassy was following up on that, but I had no idea because, you know, they blocked all of it and I had no real contact with the outside world. I didn't even know if the embassy or the the government knew where I was. And I assume that they didn't know at the beginning. Eventually, actually, strangely, I managed to send them a text message from the interrogation. This was maybe six weeks after my arrest. I'd been given my own mobile phone and the use of WhatsApp with the, you know, supervision of the interrogator to contact my ex-husband. And they had this, you know, insane plot at one point where they wanted to try and lure him to Iran. But um, one of them sort of dropped the ball and turned his back on me and left the room suddenly for some reason, just for, you know, a few seconds. And I still had the phone in my hand and the embassy had sent some sort of standard message to my phone asking, you know, me to contact the embassy if I was in trouble or needed assistance, you know, way back at the the first 24 hours of my arrest. So I managed to reply to that and and say, tell them that I was in Evin prison and that the Revolutionary Guards were the group who had arrested me. After six weeks, at least I knew that they must have known where I was, but I had no contact with them and no way of, of knowing if they were advocating for me or not. I think that's one of the most terrifying aspects of all of this. That and the fact that you spent I think it was, was it 12 months in total in solitary? Yeah, cumulatively 12 months. So what I'd love to know, Kylie, is really the tactic was was mental torture. Their aim was to crush your spirit. And I think that's the wording you use in your book. 
and you describe losing yourself. At what stage did this happen and when did you know that you were losing yourself? It happens very quickly and it's a deliberate strategy of dehumanisation that my captors employed against me and employed generally against everyone in that facility. You're stripped of your sense of uniqueness as a human being. You're given a number or a code instead of a name and people referred to me as 97029. I just didn't know what that meant because it was all Farsi numbers. But I figured it out because it would be written on my forms. It would be written on sometimes the styrofoam container of food they would give me. So I figured out that was my number. You know, you're treated like an animal. You're forced to live in conditions that are subhuman in a way. You're yelled at constantly, demeaned, constantly belittled. You're not allowed any human contact that could be positive. The only contact I had with other human beings was aggression and negativity and insults. And a lot of the time I spent alone inside my own head with nobody to speak to. And and that sort of erases your humanity and your sense of self. And you really retreat inside yourself and question everything and ruminate and regret and go over and over things in your head. And it, it really does drive you insane after even just a few short days. You know, after a few weeks there, I was dehumanized to such an extent that I was becoming a crazy lady inside my own head. The thing is, though, you did survive and you describe yourself. I mean, I think you write this, luckily I'm strong. And not everybody would make it through. We know stories where people don't make it through. What did you witness in yourself as they tried to dehumanize you? How did you cope? Was it emotional detachment? What techniques did you play out in your head to cope with that emptiness, that loneliness, that absolute detachment from any sense of certainty? I think they were very close to breaking me at the beginning. In a way, knowledge is power. And until I properly understood the parameters of what was happening, who had captured me, what they were going to do to me, whether or not they could physically torture me, sexually assault me, all of these things, these questions that were running through my mind at the beginning, until I had established what the answer was to most of those questions, I was just overcome by fear and really, really did allow them to break me in a way, give in to despair. But I'm a very curious person and luckily I was able to establish an illicit note passing network and later on even snatch conversation with prisoners in other cells whom I never saw face to face and slowly educate myself about what was going on and where the boundaries lay. And that empowered me to a certain extent and also the knowledge that I had some some friends or others who were going through the same ordeal as me and the solidarity that I gleaned from that really gave me strength too. But I'd say that we're all stronger than we think we are. If somebody had have told me I would would have gone through this, I would have said, there's no way I'd survive that. But you do. I mean, I didn't have a choice but to survive. To end that and, and, I don't know, self-harm or extract yourself from it, it's very, very difficult. It's not easy. You've got cameras on you 24 hours a day. Somebody's monitoring you on those cameras. You're under a lot of scrutiny from the interrogators, from the prison guards. If you wanted to do something to yourself, they would come in and stop it straight away. So it's, it's not like I could just check out of it even if I wanted to. And you find reserves of strength you didn't realize you had, and you find coping mechanisms and ways of dealing with it. And over time, I got better and better at identifying how what worked for me, you know, and often it was emotional disassociation, 
It was keeping my mind busy. It was having goals and aims and little projects and little schemes to focus on. It was having personal projects like learning Farsi that I dedicated myself to and enabled me to pass the time. You know, all these little things, everybody does it differently, but I actually met very few people in the more than two years I spent in prison who were genuinely broken apart by the experience. A lot of people found various ways of getting through it, not to say they weren't damaged, but everybody found their own survival mechanisms. I read in the book that you would play around with your memory. You would try to backtrack through various experiences and just lay them out in chronological order in your mind to keep your mind active. But you also wrote about the difference between what happens to short-term memory and long-term memory. Can you describe that? Yeah, this is a really common effect of solitary confinement that a lot of my friends and others that I knew who went through it in prison also recounted that you get this kind of temporary amnesia and your short-term memory just warps and distorts and very, very quickly you forget a lot of basic information. You know, I forgot my own colleagues' names. I forgot the music, the the movies, the books that I'd enjoyed at the time of my arrest, what I was watching on TV or whatever. I forgot all of this basic information in the years prior to my arrest, but my long-term memory became more vivid and enhanced. And I remembered events and, and people and places that I didn't even know I'd recalled, you know, that had never actually cropped up in my mind before having experienced them, whether that be, you know, 25 years ago when I was a child in primary school, for example, I didn't even know my brain retained such detail, but suddenly that popped back up into, you know, into my mind. So I I slowly started to more and more inhabit these long-term memories and just lie on the floor with my eyes closed and go back in my mind to my childhood or events, people, places from decades earlier and trawled through those memories and re-experienced them in a way. Whereas, you know, I couldn't tell you much about myself or what I was interested in or what I was doing right up until the moment of my arrest in the short term. It is fascinating to hear you say that. I can't help but think it's an obvious coping mechanism. And you hear this kind of thing playing out for anyone who goes through any kind of trauma. It's a way for the brain to shut down certain parts to free you up to access hope you know, at the core of your humanity. It's really interesting also that you refer to curiosity as something that pulled you back from being sucked in by this mental torture. It's a theme actually, Kylie, that comes up quite a lot on this podcast, that curiosity has been shown to be an incredible pathway to dealing with anxiety and a range of other sort of trauma-based experiences. I find it incredibly um, and overwhelmingly, I've got to say, beautiful that that's how you got through things. Thank you. Yeah, I I think that having a curious intellect was key because I kept learning even when I was there and I remained interested in knowledge and information. Who were my captors? How do they think? How do they see the world? How do they practice their religion? Why do they think their religion allows them to do what they're doing to me? How do they see me as a Western woman? How do they see women's place in the world? You know, all of these big questions, I I found it fascinating to get an insight into what is quite a secretive hardline Islamist group. And it was a window into this this organization that very few Westerners have. And, you know, I'm maintaining that curiosity and trying to develop my understanding of their world and, and which was the world I was now inhabiting 
it also helped me learn and grow and focus on new things, even whilst undergoing such a traumatic experience. And I think it was a coping mechanism too, and a survival mechanism. And I, I dedicated hours of my life to studying the Farsi language. And a lot of the time I spent in solitary, I'd been given a dictionary and a grammar book after a few months. And I literally taught myself the language from the TV, from translating their the newspaper, which I was given only for nine months or so, um, every few days in, in the middle of my incarceration. And then it was cut when COVID happened. But I really would just, I had so much time on my hands. I would just sit there and translate every word of the newspaper and then memorize the vocabulary and try and identify which grammatical aspects were being used in which sentences. And then if I didn't have that curiosity and that instinct that I should keep learning and, and keep thinking and keep using my mind, I think my mind would have gone to mush and I would have become consumed by despair and lethargy. And yeah. Did you experience moments of even, I mean, dare I say it, but joy in that learning and, and in any of it? The way that you portray things in your book, your forgiveness and, and sort of appreciation of small moments in kindness is palpable. Did you really in any way experienced joy in this process? Yes, I did. I had many moments of fun and hilarity and I made some really, really good friends in prison and I shared a cell with two of them for nine months and these were two who I'd been in touch with via the note passing network for, I don't know, 10 months or so prior even. So I already knew them when we were put together and we created a little bubble for ourselves. We created this little community of three people in our cell we had our own habits and routines. We continued to teach each other new things and to do an exercise regime together and, you know, prepare food together in the very, very basic food we had access to. And we had little projects and schemes and we kept each other busy and it distracted each other from the reality we were all facing. We had many happy moments together. We had many fun moments of just like black humor or black comedy, which is, you know, a lot of prisoners resort to in prison, where your situation is just so deplorable that it becomes hilarious. And, you know, I got to know quite a few of the prison guards too. And whilst I wouldn't say they were my friends, two or three of them I was friendly with. And, you know, I had some fun times with them too. I remember reading in your book, you actually eventually did get a trial and you had to force everyone's hand on that. I mean, I'll let everyone read the book to find out how you did that. It was creative. It was imaginative. It was risky and very, very brave. But you eventually got a trial and you got what's called the hanging judge, a particular judge who's renowned for sending people to the gallows. I suppose in many ways you expected to die. And I know that you then obviously were not sentenced to hanging, but were sentenced to 10 years imprisonment. After the trial, you went back to your prison. And I suspect it was these two women you went back to. And it turned into some sort of celebration. It's a beautiful moment. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it was the same two women, Nilufar and Sepide, and I actually dedicate my book to these two incredible women. Um, they're wildlife conservationists, also innocent, and have been there for more than four years now, sadly. And they're still there, aren't they? Oh, they are, yes. And Nilufar is, is two weeks older than me, so exactly the same age, educated it at um, Columbia University in the US, worked for five years in Geneva for the UN Environment Program. So she's one of the best and brightest of that country, a young woman who also falsely ac accused of some bogus espionage charges. And Sepida and her husband, Human, my other cellmate, Sepida, there's a group of them, they were all rounded up. And they're some of the kindest, most loveliest people. And 
they really touched me and I dedicated the book to them. And yeah, when I came back from my trial, it was actually the sentencing hearing. So I'd, I'd had a two-day trial, two days with about six weeks or, or two months between them. And then I'd gone back to the judge's office to hear my sentence. And I knew I'd be found guilty. It was clear to me the whole thing was a, was a farce. It was a joke. And this judge was just a, a puppet of the Revolutionary Guard Corps who'd arrested me. And he is a fearsome guy. I mean, he has killed journalists, you know. One month after I came back from Iran, he sentenced to hanging and enacted that sentence. Um, a, a dissident journalist whom the same group had kidnapped and brought into Iran and then killed. So he's a fearsome person. I'd come back from his office and he'd given me 10 years. And it was just surreal. I, I wasn't expecting 10 years because that was the maximum sentence for my charges. I knew they wouldn't give me the death penalty because by then I'd understood that I'm a hostage and they want something in exchange for me. I have value to them. If they killed me, I'd be completely useless to them. They wouldn't get anything in exchange for me. My government wouldn't negotiate with the Iranians over me. I was useless to them as a dead body. They needed to exchange me for something. Whilst they did threaten me with the death penalty during the interrogations, I didn't really believe it because I thought that would be pointless on their perspective. So I, I got the full sense of the maximum sentence for my charges. And I was thinking, gosh, there's no evidence, you know, like the whole court was a complete sham. Why would they give me this huge 10 year sentence? And it was mortifying because, you know, I said, as I said, I was 31. So I'd be 41 by the time I got out. You know, these are some of the best years of my life. Would I even be able to have children or have a family? All of these things were going through my mind. But in such a situation, laughter and comedy is really one of the best responses to it because what can you do you're going to go go back to your cell and just cry you know I'd cried so much by that point and this is almost a year after my arrest I'd been through so much that I didn't have any tears left and I got back to my cell and I just screamed 10 years at my two cellmates Nilu and Sipide and we hugged each other and then we sort of had a little party where we we danced and we sung and we made a big feast you know a feast is obviously relative to prison we prepared some special food and we, we danced about and we composed um, some um, some rap lyrics about the judge and the court and just um, were as silly as we possibly could be. And, and that was our way of burning off energy. And I guess all three of us, because they were waiting to be sentenced too. So there was a lot of anxiety in that cell about what would happen to all of us. And me getting the sentence and getting a 10-year one at that was a way for all of us just to let out some of our anxiety and our negative energy and perversely celebrate. It really struck me, actually, that it would be turned into a celebration. You referred to the fact that you were arrested, captured the whole thing by the Islamic Revolutionary Guard. This is not the normal military. They operate outside the Iranian government and the military, right? They're a second arm. Can you just tell us a little bit about the situation in Iran and where this Revolutionary Guard Corps fits in? That's a good question. And you're, you're correct in saying that they are separate from the Iranian government and military. They're a kind of a rival military and a rival state within a state of the official government. They started off as a military group. They have units operating overseas in the war in Syria, in Yemen, in Iraq, for example. They started up after the Iranian Revolution of 1979, and they're a kind of a hardline Islamist elite group that's tasked with protecting the revolution. So not protecting the Iranian people, like the regular military, just protecting the revolution and stopping any anti-revolutionary activities or any threats to the 
Islamist ideology of that revolution. And there were a lot of those threats at the beginning, including Saddam Hussein in the Iran-Iraq war. And, you know, so they very much were formed out of military conflict. But since that war came to an end and since the regime, you know, strengthened its grip on power and saw off any competition, they've become this behemoth where they're a rival of every facet of the government, from foreign policy to business and economy to military to even intelligence. There is a, a government intelligence ministry, actually, and then there's the Revolutionary Guards Intelligence Organization, and they're rivals, and they, they often have turf wars with one another and are opposing one another. And yet there's courts that operate with this Revolutionary Guard, and they've got prisons, and It sounds like the Iranian government's almost held hostage to this group of militants. Yeah, it's complicated. The the government, it has its own parallel court system and even detention sites like where I was, 2A, which was exclusively under their control. The court system's called revolutionary courts and revolutionary judges. And basically it's IRGC aligned courts as opposed to regular courts. But all of them, the, the government and the IRGC, they answer to the same guy at the top, and that's the supreme leader. So whilst they're all fighting one another and scrambling around in a sort of a divide and conquer strategy of the supreme leader, at the end of the day, they all answer to the same guy, the same dictator. And they are all on the same page ideologically, especially now, actually, Iran had a autocratic election, a highly staged managed election last year and elected a hardline IRGC aligned president called Raisi. So now it's considered that this hardline faction has captured both wings, you know, both the IRGC and the elected government. So it's it's really complicated, but um, often people get caught up between these turf wars and Nilufar and Sipide, my cellmates, the government of Iran did its own investigation and said that that group is innocent, that they're not spies, that they're just environmentalists, and came out publicly and said, we think they're innocent. Whereas the IRGC said, no, we think they're guilty and we're going to show you that by sentencing them in our courts and throwing them in prison anyway. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Which makes any kind of hostage diplomacy that much more difficult. And ultimately, as you mentioned, you were aware that you were being held hostage for a reason. You're an Australian and they wanted something out of the Australian government. And in the end, ultimately, your release was about a prisoner swap. But I think a big part of your book chronicles how you begged to get your, you know, your story, your situation public. And in fact, it went to the extent of you smuggling out a letter to Scott Morrison. You describe in the book as well that this was almost the hardest bit of your ordeal, that 
you know, you were screaming out, crying out, desperate for the Australian people to to know about this, for maybe some media interest in it, so that there could be some sort of resolution to your situation. But the Australian government was very much against this. So your family had to keep quiet about this. Your friends were ringing them saying, where's Kylie? What's happened to her? And they were not allowed to say anything. Do you feel that this kind of hostage diplomacy, this approach to it, is this how it should be handled? Or do you feel that you need to get attention, you need to get the story out there for something to happen? It's a really difficult question. And often both families and governments are in between a rock and a hard place. I think it, it should be determined on a case by case basis. Every country is different. Every situation is different. Sometimes it is conceivable that having public attention or a public campaign for somebody held overseas could be damaging or, or backfire on them. But I think in the case of Iran, there's re- very little evidence that that is what happens. There are so many foreign or dual national citizens that Iran takes hostage, and many of them are in the public domain, their their cases are known. And there's not a single case where one of those people has been punished or negatively impacted in the prison or in any other way by that being made public. So, you know, I myself experienced benefits when my situation after 12 months of being kept secret was leaked to the media. You know, they used to weaponize medical care against me because I was resisting a lot at that point and had been banned from phone calls, banned from consular visits, everything as a punishment. That included being banned from seeing a doctor or receiving medical treatment at certain times too. When it became public, a lot of that was removed and there was more care and attention placed on my physical health. I saw that they there was more hesitancy to punish me and to treat me as badly as they were because they knew that there was some 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 of a spot something of a spotlight on them and that some of that might filter out to the outside there was an interest in curiosity in how I was being treated and that might make my captors look bad so I did see benefits to it and also I think it suits DFAT and the government to keep it quiet because then nobody's breathing down their necks asking questions. What are you doing for this person? Have you done enough in the past? Can you demonstrate that you're actually following up on their case? It's more convenient for bureaucrats and, and politicians to not have to answer those difficult questions. I don't know if they did enough at the beginning of my case. And certainly having that spotlight on me later on forced the government to prioritise my situation. You noticed it actually at a intimate level, a day-to-day level in terms of how you were treated. And ultimately, it did start to get some momentum. There was interest and then there were different diplomats that came to visit you and there just seemed to be a movement towards eventually getting you released. I've got to ask though, how did you smuggle a letter to Scott Morrison? Like, what did you actually have to do to smuggle a letter out of out of prison? I actually sent many, many letters out of prison. Sometimes I was caught, the letter was intercepted in front of me and I was punished, including getting beaten up one time. Other times the letter would get out and I wouldn't know what happened to it and it would never reach its intended target or it would never be published. A cache of letters that I'd written in Farsi to Iranian officials complaining about the human rights violations I'd been subjected to and the unjust nature of my trial. They were leaked and published in the British media as a group of letters, but they were all written at different times across several months. And the letter that I'd written in English to Scott Morrison was also published 
And that litter actually I'd leached twice. The first time, six months earlier, it had been intercepted. I'd later found out that they knew about it and, um, you know, that they it hadn't reached its target. I had a copy of it and I, I leaked it again a second time via a different method and it ultimately got published, which I find is remarkable. I don't know what my success rate was, but a hell of a lot of them didn't make it and that one somehow miraculously did. What was the mechanism? Are you able to actually talk about what you did to get the letters out of jail? Like, It's not like you have access to stamps and... Oh, no, no, no. This was very dangerous. And I can't tell you exactly how because, you know, it could hurt others who are still using this method or who have helped me. I didn't do it alone. I did it with the assistance of others. But there were several ways that I got it out. I got several letters out in several different ways. And it was very dangerous. As I said, I I was even beaten up for doing it. And you know, I, at that point, I was desperate and I had I was banned from all family phone calls and embassy visits. So I had no communication with the outside world at all. And I thought that perhaps taking such a desperate and risky act could help me or benefit me in some way. And it's worth a try, even if not, at least I've tried. Gosh, the, the bravery and also just the ingenuity, I'm sure, that was involved to, to make that happen. I'm interested in the fact that your life before arriving in Iran for that conference, you'd been married less than a year to the Russian-Israeli man. You'd just bought a house in the Dandenongs and you had worked several jobs to save up for that place. Like it meant a hell of a lot to you. Is this part of what got you through the process that you had something to look forward to? I feel like I felt that I had a lot to lose on the flip side. I felt that I had set everything up in life and I was following that track in life that, you know, somebody in their early 30s might for social reasons feel they should be on, you know, getting married, buying a house, perhaps having children in the future. And suddenly I'd been ripped away from all of that and everything was thrown up into question. In a way, having all of that and then having it taken away from me was more painful than had I have started from nothing. (laughs) I actually blocked out all thoughts of home after about six months. I I just stopped thinking about my job, my life, my home, everything, and tried to focus on the here and now and on being in Iran and the prison and not think about my life prior to that because I guess as a survival mechanism, a coping mechanism, again, it was less painful that way. Is that idea of, you know, the marriage, the mortgage, the nice secure job, does that dream seem really odd to you now? Yes, in a way. I'm much more cynical, I guess, about that. I'm more independent. I always have been, but I'm much, much more so where I feel now I don't need other people. I'm okay being alone. I want to look after myself and I'm still in the house that I bought, which is great. And I'm proud of myself for being able to save the money and, and afford the mortgage and still, you know, own a house. I guess that fairy tale of, you know, the the marriage and the kids and the family and the, the job and all of that. To me, it, it's not necessarily what I want right now in life anyway, but also I'm much more cynical about it. And I, know, I understand that no matter how great plans you might lay for yourself, life and process banner in the works anyway. Yeah, there's nothing like being stripped completely bare to leave you probably just forced to define a life for yourself that doesn't fit by the rule book. Um, Yeah, that's very true. 
Look, one thing that did happen when you got out of jail, of course, is your husband, you learned, hadn't lasted the distance. Are you able to talk about what happened? I mean, I'll just say that I was aware of it when I was in prison. It wasn't necessarily a shock to me that our marriage had ended upon coming back to Australia. I'd picked up on it more than 12 months prior during the limited engagement I'd had with him on various phone calls at various points. And the fact that my family stopped mentioning him, the ambassador stopped mentioning him, it was though he ceased to exist in a way. And I wasn't feeling supported by him. I I didn't feel that he was in my life anymore or, or he was there for me anymore. So I'd already thought about it myself in prison and decided, look, you can't really come back from this. It's such a big life moment. And if your partner is not by your side, well, you've got to make the decision to move on. So I didn't understand that he'd had an affair, but for some reason or another, I knew that he was not supporting me. A part of your book also goes into one of the revolutionary guards who you describe as a psychopath, and he certainly ticks all the boxes that I know of that describe a psychopath who played mind games with you. He was he was essentially the guard who was, or one of the guards who was in charge of you, but he ended up falling in love with you, which is both bizarre um, but understandable. But also to me, it, it really goes to that, that really delicate point where humanity has to come through in these horrible experiences. How did you interpret it when it was happening? I spent a lot of time analysing and psychoanalyzing myself and him and trying to figure out all the dimensions of this crazy game that was being played all around me whose rules I didn't properly understand. And I resisted the idea that he actually had genuine feelings for me for a long time because I just couldn't comprehend it. He did have psychopathic qualities and he probably did like me in some fashion from the very beginning, but was attempting to control me through force, through aggression, through anger at the beginning and expected me to bend to his will and wanted me to be under his emotional control. And when that failed, then he switched and I guess tried to win me over through friendship. It was a mixed thing. I mean, it wasn't all negative. I I was in solitary confinement at the time and I had some fantastic chats with him and he would come and, you know, bring me pizza or bring me cake or bring me, you know, stuff that would alleviate my poor conditions in in solitary confinement would give me books as well, which were a godsend. And we'd have interesting intellectual discussions. So uh, it's it's a strange thing, really. I think that my time in prison was lengthened because of him and his involvement. But at the same time, he made it more bearable for me at certain points too. So it's a hard one. Or maybe I've just got Stockholm syndrome. I don't know. Yeah. Well, potentially, but I think Stockholm syndrome stems from a desire for people to connect ultimately. And Stockholm syndrome kicks in when, you know, your only contact is with your prisoner, you know? And I think that's something that I really pick up from the various interviews I've heard you give, but also, you know, in your writing is that the experience really got you to see humans in their full breadth and range and humanity as a as an essence you know i love how you refer to the fact that you love iranians and you forgive many of the guards and the interrogators and i'm just wondering is forgiveness a choice or is it something that emerged out of this bare bones sense of humanity that you experienced i think you always have a choice whether to forgive or not to forgive When you humanize your oppressor and you get to know them as an individual person, which I was lucky enough to experience, 
I think it is easier to forgive when you understand the other side a little bit and what their motivations might be or their worldview. But also I think it's a choice because, you know, you either carry that bitterness around inside you and that anger or you let go of it. And I just don't want to be consumed by it. I'm still very angry about what happened to me, but that anger is not necessarily directed at specific individuals. It's directed at the the system as a whole. I pity them in a way. The people who captured me, they're brainwashed. They've been brainwashed from birth. It is their fault and they're responsible for their actions. But I also came to understand that they don't have access to the information that we might have. And they have this really strict religious view of the world forced on them from childhood. And the way that they see the world is so radically different that do they really have a choice to behave in any other way? Obviously they do, but I also kind of understand them too. So I did explicitly want to move on from what happened to me. And so I don't want to be eaten up by bitterness or resentment. But at the same time, I think, yeah, understanding the other side and not making everything black and white, good versus evil, us versus them helps in forgiving too. I do detect in your writing a great sense of love and anger at the same time. And we don't always talk about the two being able to coexist in a human. Your story certainly, certainly allows for it. That's for sure. Kylie, now back in Australia, you've been back a little while and you're living up in the Dandenongs. What are you doing and how are you finding meaning in your life today? I'm trying to take things slowly. I'm not pressuring myself to jump straight back into a career or take up a full-time job. It's a process. And actually, at the beginning, it was easier than it is now in a way because I was on just such a high. Such It was such an amazing feeling to come home and be free and rediscover my freedom and rediscover aspects of life that I'd been denied for more than two years. And I think I was on that high for about six months and everything was just fantastic. Obviously, you have to come back down to earth at some point. Right now, it's probably more difficult for me to deal with than it was when I very first came back. But um, I'm just taking it slowly, prioritizing my recovery. I really enjoyed writing the book. I, I enjoyed the writing process. I enjoyed getting my experiences down on paper and working through them and ordering them and making sense of them too as I wrote. So maybe I'll do some more writing in the future. I'm not sure. Yeah, writing's become my greatest comfort. It's incredible. Some people ask me what's the greatest fix for having bipolar disorder and I'm like, writing a book, you know, sharing tips with the world and you've got to hold yourself accountable and you've really got to go down into deep, dark places to be able to fathom and to understand and create a sense of meaning, I suppose. I do want to just flag to listeners that the writing of the book was really interesting, actually. You did a lot of pacing backwards and forwards and formulating, I guess, the thread and, and some of the ideas about, of your story while you were in prison. And then I think, I under, as I understand it, when you got on that plane to fly home from Iran after two years and three months in jail, you actually started writing notes down. You had a pen and paper and you could actually start writing. And it reminds me of Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, which is probably my all-time favorite book. He wrote that in nine days after being released from Auschwitz. The parallel is really fascinating because, of course, he didn't have access to pen and paper, you know, in Auschwitz, and he had the ideas clear in his head. He'd been thinking them out. And in many ways, it's what enabled him to survive the four years of, you know, of hard labor where a lot of his fellow prisoners perished. And I just find it so interesting that it's the first thing you did. You got on a plane and started jotting down notes. Yeah, I had been memorizing a lot of information for 
about seven or eight months prior to my release, I'd started mental exercises of memorizing conversations, meetings, anything of importance throughout each week that I'd spent there. I had a huge amount of detail in my mind as a result. And I also memorized a lot of poems that I'd written and and other writings that I'd written in prison that I wasn't able to take out with me, obviously, physically and on paper. I think I was just paranoid that I'd forget it all. And as soon as I got out, so I, yeah, I got, I could, I didn't sleep for three days because I just was so highly strung. I, I couldn't switch my mind off. I spent all of the flight home writing, scribbling notes, um, mental cues to myself so that I wouldn't forget certain detail that I'd memorized. Yeah, I love that visual. And it may have something to do with the flat white that you drank at the Australian embassy in Iran (laughs) before you got on that flight. That's a a very visual part of your book is that moment where you finally um, got to eat lunch and and had a coffee, your first coffee in two and a half years. Oh, I was craving that coffee so bad in prison, honestly. Like, God, does that still happen? Like people go for a week without a coffee because of whatever reason. Did you still crave coffee in prison? Oh, yes, of course. I mean, I think it was a comfort factor, you know. A nice hot coffee is comforting and I associated it with home as well because Iran doesn't have much of a coffee culture. Especially Iranian prisons run by the Revolutionary Guard. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, most definitely. (laughs) Just while you're on that topic, I'd love to know what else um, you craved that was kind of maybe strikes people as odd. Anything that reminded me of home and also Western food because they have an amazing cuisine in Iran. Their food is incredible, not necessarily the prison food, but in general. But, you know, comforting foods. I wanted scrambled eggs. I wanted smashed avo. I wanted European (laughs) cheeses, hard cheeses, this kind of thing that isn't really part of their cuisine at all. Yeah. Isn't it funny how it goes back to those kinds of basics? Kylie, I have one last question, and it's a question that I don't ask every guest. It's not always appropriate, but I think it is particularly appropriate for you. I often ask, and it's it's taken from Eric Fromm, who posed this question in sort of the nuclear era when everyone was scared of the whole world being wiped out. He asks, what is left if we lose it all? I'm wondering what your answer to that is. Gosh, it depends what it all actually means, but... I really was taught the importance of human connection and human interaction in prison and particularly in solitary confinement. I say in the book I actually preferred when I was removed from 2A from solitary and sent to a prison in the desert full of criminals, which was technically a punishment for me. But I actually preferred to live amongst criminals, drug addicts, murderers in this dilapidated prison in the desert that actually used to be a chicken processing plant um, then I did it in solitary confinement and the reason for that was human connection I had absolutely nothing I didn't even have clothes to wear at the beginning other prisoners donated them to me but I had human interaction and human connection and I think as long as you have that and friendship and solidarity and community that's really all you need yeah I, I hear you on that Kylie, thank you so much for this. We have so much more to talk about. We'll have to do it on a hike at some stage, but I hope that this is enough to entice listeners to go and buy your book and learn more about your story and about resilience and love of humanity at the end of the day, the complexities and all. Thank you so much for living out your story and sharing it with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been great. I truly got a lot from this interview and it took me a few days to process the whole thing. 
By the end of our chat, I felt very moved and close to Kylie. Her rawness and her sadness did that, I guess. I felt myself aching towards her as things unfolded. I guess the most profound takeaway from her story that she explains really honestly and in a relatable way is the incredible strength and even beauty of humans when we are in our most desperate situation, when stripped bare. I listened to a story and I felt a strange comfort. No matter how low we go, we will survive. The human spirit can and will find a way. And it's when we're rendered choiceless. And obviously in Kylie's extreme case, she was rendered choiceless from taking her own life. We access unbelievable strength. I love how she says that she met very few broken humans in jail. Everyone finds a way to access life when they're forced to. The other bit that really grabbed me is how curiosity, once again, is such a powerful force. Is it an emotion, a character trait, a skill? I certainly think it's something that can be practiced and cultivated. Anyway, it brings about compassion as well as joy amidst the terror and again provides a very bare and honest answer to that quandary I often pose. What is left to protect us? to provide a base for living if everything is taken away. And remaining curious seems to be the expansive and loving way for so many of the experts I speak to in this series. That and human connection, as Kylie says. And I should just say before we finish, there's a bit of the conversation where we talk about doing a hike together to talk all of these themes through further. Hiking and being in nature is a huge sale for Kylie. And in fact, um, she says she's read my book, This One Wild and Precious Life. But that bit was cut out of the recording. But we will definitely make that hike together work and we'll report back on how it goes. Until next time, please stay wild. 